0: Well, welcome listeners, Uh, another segment of this apologetic series that I'm taking us through today, we've got segment 13, and we're going to be hitting a verse uh, that is a, a beautiful passage, it's a beautiful promise that God gives to us, but I think that it's been hijacked. And what I mean by saying that it's been hijacked is that it has grown legs to become something that it was never really intended to become, in my estimation. And that's going to be found in Philippians 1.6. Now, I am on my 13th segment on this one. I think there's been just a handful of ones that I've only done one verse. Today is going to be one of those because I, there's a lot to unpack with it. Um, <clears throat> but I've probably covered roughly about 20 passages That I believe have been hijacked, have been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and as a result, mistaught. Um, I still have about 10 or so, but I'm also... I want to know what verses it is that you might want to, to have broken down. And so if there are some verses that you guys you know, you know about, it's ones that I haven't gone over. And, and some of them I've gone over the verses within the verse, meaning like maybe I've talked about Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And within that segment, I've broken down the James fours or the first Corinthians nine, 24 through 27, or various ones like that. And I've broken those down. So maybe I have kind of covered it, but if there's a passage that you're like, man, I just don't understand what this means. Or how does this passage fit with some of the things that you're saying? I would love to hear from you on that so that I can jot that down and serve you in that way by going over some of these passages in light of the text. Um, and so if you have those somehow find a way get that to me i think i know that there's a lot of people who listen to these that um, are close to me that have direct influence or direct access to be able to communicate with me and and maybe that's not you maybe you're from great britain or maybe you're from ireland or maybe you're from japan or maybe you're from ghana and you're downloading these podcasts and you're listening to them. you don't quite know how to um to get a hold of me um and that, I would just say, trust the Lord, continue listening, and, and maybe he will direct me in a way that would be able to be beneficial to you. So with that, I'm going to get into Philippians 1, six. Um, so let me read the verse, in case you're not familiar with it. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Now this is, as I said, a beautiful Passage, And it's one that is directed for us as Christians who believe in him to take a lot of hope in. And we should take a lot of hope in this passage. However, what I do think has happened with this passage, and in fact I know that it's happened because I've been in platforms in which I've heard this verse taught. I've read books where I've heard this verse taught. And it's been incorrect because it's been taught outside of the full scope of the word of God. And that can be a dangerous thing because what we find ourselves getting into in that moment is when we read a verse, we presume what we want upon it. And that's actually a dangerous thing because presumption can be a sinful practice. Um, If you are unfamiliar with presumption, I actually just had this discussion with my son, which is partially why I'm going in this direction with this. The difference between assumption and presumption. Assumption is to base a, a verdict of something, a, a judgment of something, with very little to no evidence whatsoever. Uh, presumption is to actually have evidence for what you're declaring, what your judgment is, how you might interpret a verse. You have sufficient evidence, but it's not 100% concrete. However, you still treat it as if it is. And I think a lot of people presume upon this passage because it's written. It's right there. And I could take this verse and I could make it say what I want to and presume that this is a salvific passage. I could presume that this is simply stating a, you know, hey, once God started a work in you, it's going to be brought to completion. Let me clarify something real quick in the very beginning of what Paul says in this verse. He uses... A Greek word here that I'm going to break down for us just, you know, just real quick of what it means. Um, He says this, I am sure of this. Now you might think that that's a concrete statement. However, I could show you several verses in which this word specifically is used and it actually has an uncertainty attached to it. It's not an eternal decree. It's not an unconditional guarantee. It is simply confidence. In fact, the, the word that's used here is pitho. And it's the Greek word that means to be persuaded. To, uh, to almost be tranquilized, if you will, according to what the, the Thayer's definition is bringing. To be moved and persuaded. To believe concerning something. To have a confidence or a trust in. It's not something in which it's like, man, this is an unconditional guarantee that God is going to finish the work that he started in you. Paul says, look... If you read the context of the passage, he says, look, I'm seeing that you guys are partnering with me in this gospel, that you guys are being persecuted for this gospel. Excuse me. that things are happening in your life and I'm seeing that the love and that the faith that you have is actually growing and increasing in spite of the trials so because of these things I am persuaded to think this way I am confident to think this way that God who began this work in you is going to bring things to completion but did he ever one shred of evidence say that it's in spite of maybe what you might do or not do And that's going to make sense in just a second as I kind of run through some of these passages. And we look at the if and the thens. And for you, you might look at that and say, well, what do you mean by if and then? Well, if and then is littered throughout all of Scripture. The one, probably one of the most famous ones, is the Second Chronicle seven fourteen one. If if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn for their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Right? Just a paraphrase to what that actually states. It's the if and the then. It's the promise that is there if the condition is met. Excuse me. You see, Philippians 1, six is all about a condition being, I'm sorry, a promise being given to us. However, there's a condition that has to be met for that promise to come to fruition. The if and the then. Eon is the Greek word for if. And un is the Greek word for then. So if you want to take something from this, you want to learn kind of the Greek phrase, the if and the then, you could just simply say eon un. If and then. Now let me break this down for you just real quick. Eon is, is, you could just translate it as the provision that we supply to the promise. It's our part within the contract, if you will. And I don't know if many people really realize this. <coughs> excuse me. But the Greek word that's used for even testament, so like you have the Old Testament, then you have the New Testament, is the Greek word diathekion. It means contract. It's also a word that can be translated as promise. Or it's covenant. It's a word that (coughs) has condition attached to it. So the new covenant that we have is the promises of God met with the provision in which we supply to those promises. Excuse me one second. (coughs) Sorry, I got something in my throat. And it just doesn't seem to be going away. So, (coughs) excuse me. So what do I mean by all of this? You could look at Philippians 1.6 and you could presume that this is an unconditional promise at the expense of what it is that we have to supply to it. Well, that's not the if and the then concept that's littered all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me give you an illustration of this. Verse 23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now I could presume upon that and say that that's an unconditional promise. That God is surely going to do it. He will keep me blameless. He will keep me uh, my whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. Man, there won't be a mark against me. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, let's flip back just a couple pages to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, through 13 and, and I find this interesting because it's the exact same book. You see, we oftentimes like to translate the promises that God gives to us, we translate them into something that's absent of condition. But there's very few promises that God gives in the Old Testament or the New Testament that are absent of condition. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Remember, the whole concept of this was that we would be blameless. Okay? The whole concept of what he said of 1 Thessalonians 5 23 through 24, is that we would be blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. There would be no mark against us, And God is able to do it. He will surely do it. He is faithful to do it. He will totally do it. Let's look at what Paul says as part of a condition to that. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Now listen very carefully. So that, he says, may God increase you to abound in love for one another as the body of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints, did, did you did you catch it? You see, on one hand, First Thessalonians five twenty three through twenty four sounds like an unconditional promise, but when you couple the text in the same exact book, the same exact author, you couple this passage with it, you see the condition. Now, this is just one example. Let me take you back to Philippians one, nine through ten. Same passage, same chapter. This is what he says. The whole concept is he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. I'm confident of this. And in fact, I've even heard the teachings of this one in which they forget that I am sure of this part. They just quote the promise. They don't quote the condition to which Paul's even stated within that. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. We we make it a definitive declaration. But that's not the context of the passage. is what he says in verse chapter 1, 9 through 9-10. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. See the same similarity in 1 Thessalonians 3. That the love for the saints may abound more and more for one another. So that you may be blameless in holiness before the coming of Christ. Here's what he says. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that... You may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Did you catch the condition? And man, how easy it is in our ignorance to say, well, those who are truly saved will do these things. Let me just tell you. Then why is Paul stating it to the church in Philippi when he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus? He's not even saying to the church, he says to the saints. Hagiosmos, the Greek word that's used, it's those who have been set apart. He is directing this statement to people who he is already declaring saints. Holy. Set apart. Christians. You you see kind of the dilemma that's here. If we presume upon a text, simply because we might have some evidence to look at the first, or the, um, Philippians one six, and we might have a verse to pull out of our back pocket and say, "See, <clears throat> see, it's it's God's going to do it." But we don't incorporate the other parts of it, and even the context of the passage, then we could find ourselves presuming upon God, and that can be a dangerous thing. You look at at Matthew thirty nine. Jesus gives a warning of presumption. He's talking to these. to these Israelites, to these Jews. And I'm sorry, I pulled up the King James there. I'm not going to read that one. I forgot I was on my other app, um, my other Bible app in this one. He's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You look back at Matthew 3, verse 7. They're coming. And he's like, who warned you to flee from the wrath that come, bear fruit and keep your under the Then he says this in verse 9. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, now what, what is all of this essentially stating? Is that these, these Sadducees and these Pharisees presumed with sufficient evidence, according to the text of what was written under the Old Testament, that, that uh, those who are in the lineage of the Jews were going to find the commonwealth of Israel. <clears throat> they had sufficient evidence. But Jesus says, but you are presuming upon that evidence that you would be blessed Apart from your own role within the blessing. And I think it's happening today in the church that we look at Philippians 1 6. We look at Hebrews 13 5. And we'll, we'll even address that even just a little bit. We look at First 1 Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 5 23 through 24. We look at passages in John about how, <coughs> excuse me, You know, about the the concept of salvation. We look at all these passages and we presume upon them apart from all the other passages that would show the condition that we have to play in it. God is faithful, He is able to make all grace abound to us, He is able to finish what He has started in us. The question isn't is He able, it's are we willing? Are we going to do what we need to do to find the promise of God fulfilled? Look at Jeremiah eighteen seven through 10 Here's what he says here. If at any time I declare concern in a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. God says, if there's a nation that is not doing what they should and they repent of that, like Nineveh, and they turn from that, and they start doing what is supposed to be done, then I will relent of the disaster that I was going to do to it. And you're like, well, how does that fit? It's the next statement that he makes. Look at what he says in verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. Listen very carefully what he says. That I will finish the work that I started in it. That I will build it, I will plant it, I will flourish it, I will make it grow, I will make it abound, I will make it do all these things. If I say that I will do all these things, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now what's interesting is that he's specifically referencing Israel there. <clears throat> Depending on what your viewpoint is, mine is, is that we are the new Israel of God. That the church, I was talking about it with my kids today as we are going through Ezekiel in chapter 40, 39 and 40. <clears throat> we are the new Israel of God. And that's a point that I will go toe-to-toe with anybody because I think to say that Israel is still Israel and that they are still God's people. And that they still will find the covenants of God, the blessings of God, even apart from Jesus Christ, simply because they have the Abrahamic covenant. Not only do I think that that's foolish, not only do I think that it's heretical, but I think it diminishes the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm never okay with that. You see, to say that there is another way to belong to God other than through Jesus makes him a liar, because John fourteen six says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So to say that the Jews are still God's people, that Israel, despite what Luke 13 says, that Israel, their house has been forsaken, until they would believe and trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, until that would take place, they are forsaken. But the premise, moving back to the topic of what I was talking about, in <clears throat> Philippians 1.6, if God says that here is my promise, but you don't fulfill the terms of that promise, Man, don't presume upon that promise apart from the condition of your fulfillment of it. It's a very dangerous game to be playing on that one. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. I believe this is a verse that I might have covered in a previous podcast. If I didn't, I covered it when I went over um, a podcast series over the book of Romans. But in this chapter, he's talking about how the Jews were formerly God's people, how they had the commonwealth of Israel, And the Gentiles did not. And the Gentiles were on the outside looking in, if you will. But now that Christ has come, he's given access unto this salvation unto all people, Jew or Gentile. And he says it doesn't matter what your lineage is. It doesn't matter if you're a descendant of Abraham or if you're a descendant of some other guy that has no lineage of the Jews at all. You can have a direct ancestry to Jesus Christ or lineage to God through Jesus Christ. If you come in through him. And so he's talking to the Gentiles. He says. But don't. <clears throat> don't become haughty. And think that you're better than the Jews. Who are without Christ. Because you know what? You need to remember your place. were you were all sinners. And I see this happen in the church today. People who praise God for the gospel. Is that while we were sinners. Christ died for us. But then they're going to go out there. And think that they're better than other people. They're going to say. Oh no 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 no. That guy deserves justice. That guy deserves to be put in prison. That guy deserves death because he was an evil person. Well, so were you. So in the same concept, <clears throat> don't become haughty. And then he says this statement about the Jews, that even they, even if they don't, if they don't continue in their unbelief in Christ as the Son of the living God, God can graft them back in again. If they choose to relinquish their faith um, in themselves or in the Abrahamic covenant or in who they were, and they choose to put it in the Lordship of Jesus Christ... Then God can bring them back in. Listen to what He says in Romans chapter eleven, twenty-two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. That word for note means to behold, to observe. It's not just something that's like you know, <clears throat> oh, let's let's just look at the kindness of God. He makes it very plainly plain. You need to look at the kindness and the severity of God. He's talking to Christians. He said, I don't want you just to teach on the kindness of God. That's a plague in today's church. I don't want you just to talk about the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord. I want you to take notice of the severity of him too. That's why he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. And he says this, severity towards those who have fallen, referencing the Jews, the unbelieving Jews who are the household of God, but then they fell. And they became forsaken because they rejected Jesus as the Christ. But God's kindness towards you. Praise God. We just ended right there, right? God's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we don't have to worry about anything else. The severity was for the unbelievers. The severity was for people who who, know, who don't believe in Jesus. God's kindness is towards us. But listen what he says right after that. Because we can't forget about it. Though many people do. I was just talking about this uh, a few months ago. About a verse that we had to memorize for something I was doing called the forge. And it was as a father shows compassion to his children, so, <clears throat> so God shows compassion to those who fear him. And everybody talked about how compassionate God is towards us. But nobody talked about the condition within it. It's easy to to look at it and say, oh, God's so compassionate. As a father shows compassion to his children, so God shows compassion to us, guys. Praise God. He's so compassionate to us. He's so merciful. But we didn't even address the condition that was attached to it. It's for those who fear Him. In the same way, we can do the same thing with this verse. When he says, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too, Gentile Christians, will be cut off. That's not a good thing, guys. Ekopto is the Greek word that's used there for cut off, and it says a branch lobbed off from a tree. Same thing that happened, actually, to the Jews. He says to the Gentile Christians, it can happen to you too if you don't continue in His kindness. You see, it's easy to make things relative it's easy to make things palatable. But we can't do that if we're genuinely in love with truth. Philippians 1.6, we can make it palatable. We can make it say something that it really doesn't contextually or within the context of the scope of the whole scriptures. But that's not a person who loves truth. That's a person who loves their version of it. You look at Colossians 1, through 23, just a few pages over from Philippians, same author. <clears throat> Here's what he says. And you, well, who's you? We'll look back at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. There is that word again and above reproach before him but check out the condition if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister he says those promises that await you in the end they will be yours if you continue in the faith you see, you've been reconciled to him, past tense. You've been brought near to him. You've been cleansed of your former sins. But there's still promises that await you in the end, and they will be yours if you continue in the faith. <clears throat> if you're familiar with Paul and his letter in 2 Timothy, you're going to find in chapter 4, 7 through 8, Paul says this I've fought the fight. I kept the faith and I finished the race. And then he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord will reward to me but not only to me but also those who have loved His appearing. Paul says, I did what I needed to to endure so that in the end the promises that God has given to me through Jesus Christ will be mine. Brother, sister, I... I don't know what your position is. I don't know what your doctrine is. I don't know what your, um, what your thinking is right now as you're going over this. But what I can tell you right now is Philippians 1.6 is a great promise, but it is conditional in your endurance. Hebrews 10.36 says, we have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, we'll receive what is promised. He doesn't say that God hopes that you endure. He doesn't say that God is wishing that you would, that he's desiring of it. He says, you have need of it. You and I have to make it to the end and God will supply everything we need in order for that to happen. But here's my challenge for anyone who's going to try to try to address, not just Philippians six, but any scripture that is in, in the Bible. Never make a hope filled promise into an unconditional decree. You got to discern the difference. And sometimes you're not going to find it just right within that verse. Sometimes you're going to read the Philippians 1.6. And you're going to be like, man, I, I checked the context before and after. I didn't really see any context to it. Did you check the whole Bible? Did you weigh it and measure it against the whole text? Did you look at everything under every nook and cranny to see what was actually being stated? And does it fit the litmus test of Scripture? Or does it only fit yours? Hebrews chapter 6, 11 through 12. Let me pull that up real quick because I want to read this to you guys. And I want you to see something. Again, God is faithful and he will finish what he started in us if we remember to remain in him. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience, which is a Greek word that means endurance, inherit the promises. What is the author of Hebrews telling us? He says, you got to make it to the end. If you want to inherit the promises, it's not just through faith. We talked about that in my last statement in James two twenty-four. people say it's, <clears throat> it's uh, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, Right? Now I talked about that, but James two two 2.24 says, you see the person is justified not by faith alone, but by works. And people mistranslate that. Go back and listen to that podcast. Here's another one. It isn't just faith that causes us to inherit the promises in the end. It's your faith and your endurance. In the position, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that is in you. You've got to endure in your faith, which is why in the end, God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So what Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans eight 17 is all about. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul includes himself. For any of those who might be listening to this, who might be in their mind thinking, "Well, if you're really a believer, you will endure to the end," then why does Paul isolate himself in First Corinthians nine twenty-four through twenty-seven and say that if he doesn't finish the race, that he himself could be disqualified from running it? Why does he include himself in the condition in Romans eight seventeen instead of just saying "you"? He says, "No, we." We have to finish to the end, brothers and sisters, or else we won't get it. That's so what he talks about in Philippians chapter 3. they saying that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The glorification of my body. <clears throat> Paul, you can't say that if you're just truly a believer, then you will do these things. Because Paul questioned it in himself. Again, stop presuming upon the text. And leading other people astray in so doing. Hebrews chapter 10, 23. And it says this. About the concept of having a a hope. Same as Philippians one six. It is a hope filled passage. I don't want to, to diminish the hope that that passage gives to us in Christ. But I'd also don't want to elevate it past the condition that's attached to it. He says in Hebrews ten twenty three, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. But did you notice who the condition was given to by the author of Hebrews? Let us not you as if there's a doubt in their salvation. If they're really saved, the author includes himself. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Hold fast that confession until the end. And God is faithful to give you what he has promised. It really is that simple. And if you're saying that that's work-based, then man, so be it. Then it's work-based. Whatever you want to claim it, I'm telling you it's the truth of God's word. So Philippians 1.6 is a beautiful promise that God makes to us, whether it's salvific or just something more in line with Hebrews 13.5. When he says, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you, I'd encourage you to go back and look at the context of that. I even did a podcast on it in this apologetic series. He's not talking about salvation, that he'll never leave you, nor forsake you. What he's referencing is, is that if you step forward in faith, God is faithful to never leave you high and dry. He will give you and do what he has promised if you step forward in faith and you choose to trust him he will never leave you high and dry when your action is in accordance with his will you will have everything that you need that's the context that's why i even said in the beginning everybody else quotes it i'll never leave you nor forsake you but they fail to quote the beginning of it to keep your life free from the love of money the concept is about trusting god's provision Because if you step forward in faith and you trust him in it, he will not forsake you. If you go back to Deuteronomy, go back to Joshua, you're going to find the same exact thing, an Old Testament reference. But the reality is, whether this is salvific or whether it's just more in line with Hebrews 13, 5, either way, God is issuing us a hope to hold on to in the darkest moments of our journey of faith. But it most certainly is not a promise absent of God condition i'd encourage you to go study up on acts 27 and just a brief rundown i'm going to end with this and just a brief rundown paul in this boat that he's on is a slave who's being transported to rome i believe and <clears throat> says that the boat was gonna sink and everybody on this boat was terrified and paul is in typical fashion Spends time in prayer, and an angel of the Lord, I believe, he says, an angel of the God that he serves came to him, and he says, "You know what, Paul? This is going to be okay. There will be no lo- no loss of life. You'll make it to Rome." So he goes and tells the captain. The captain agrees. They begin jettisoning the cargo. They begin doing everything. The storm's getting pretty bad. And then Paul looks over, and this is probably like ten verses after he gets this promise. And some of the men are trying to jump ship. Some of these men are trying to get these lifeboats and they're trying to lower them in the water. And Paul yells out to them and he says, unless you remain in the boat, you cannot be saved. Unless you remain in the boat, you will not find the promises of God fulfilled on your behalf unless you remain and abide and tarry and wait and stay and endure to the end in the position of which you currently are you cannot find the promises of God so Paul got the promise and he delivered the condition and what i see today is many people proclaiming the promise but they leave out the condition And Satan will have a heyday with people who don't realize the condition because then they're going to think that all they have to do is pray a little prayer. And that's it. If God's not saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then you very well might not get in. The mere fact that he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, means that you and I have a job to do. Which is why he says, well done. He's not patting himself on the back, is probably what a Calvinist would believe. As somebody who would be a hyper-Calvinist to say that God's just ordained everything and he's going to see it to completion. He's going to do everything. Well then why doesn't he just pat himself on the back and say, well done, God. You kept him in the faith. You did really good. Good job. He doesn't. He looks at you and he looks at I. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's just not about us being perfect to get in. It's about us pursuing that. And it's about us remaining in the position of Jesus Christ until the end. And if we do that... He is faithful. And He will see to it that His promises find their fulfillment when we meet the condition. Y'all be blessed.